0: really it's all just to say that architecture exists in the real world, doesn't exist in its own narrative.
1: Welcome to tete a the Rice Architecture Podcast Series. This week's episode features an interview between Frances Aguillard, current m candidate and editor-in-chief for Platte 7.0, and Peggy Diemer. They sat down together prior to her visit to Houston as part of the Rice Design Alliance Fall Lecture Series. This series focuses on the sharing economy and was created in collaboration with the Platt Journal and Rice Architecture. Peggy Deemer is a professor at Yale School of Architecture and principal of Deemer Architects. Among many of her other accomplishments, she is the founding member of the Architecture Lobby, a group advocating for workers' rights and the value of architectural design in our communities. Let's tune in.
2: Peggy, thanks so much for joining us. It's super exciting to have you. Your work is focused not on the building per se, but on the process of making the building. And it would seem that the latter is inseparable from the former, but why and how is it that we have such comfort frequently parsing the two out into neat categories?
0: Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you suggest that we conflate these easily because I feel like the work of the lobby and my work is actually to make us conscious of the fact that they're not the same thing. And I tend to think that we don't realize that. Um, I think a lot about uh, the fact that if an architect is socially minded, they think about how to make something spaces that are uh, socially democratic, open to the public, affordable—all of those things—and and those issues of making democratic projects seems to take up all of the <laughs> social air, such that no one equates being socially minded with um, being conscious of our labor practices. Um, that that is a social project. So, I guess I'm I'm disagreeing about how easily we can place them because I think. We need consciousness about not conflating them. But having said that, you know, if, if there is a project to separate those, make us conscious of the one that we're not conscious of, the issue about how they do relate, and you're absolutely right that they do relate, becomes interesting. And, I, and certainly if, if we're trying to suggest that there is a division, we, we have to recognize what that connection is. Part of the right. way I think about that is that if, if we don't recognize what a democratic life is like in our day to day work experience, if we're experiencing illegal practices, um, jobs that are not empowering, jobs that don't allow us to live the way we want, that don't give us time to interact with our community, if that's our life, it's it's difficult for us then to think about how to offer society spaces, places that are free, fair, democratic, all those different things. How, how we model our own life, um, I think, is a really imp- important connection to how we want to model it for society.
2: Sure. Maybe another way to ask the question would be, do you feel that there's not enough attention given to the one about how we model our own internal life as architects, our own internal work of making these spaces
0: absolutely i think we do not give it enough attention that's absolutely it
2: right so i think the the vocabulary or the language of democratic um is incredibly exciting and evoking of a more collective approach and in your work there's a acknowledgement or a shift from talking about architecture to talking about architects and not exactly about what architecture could be, but about who architects are and what they could be. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that and what changes when we start thinking about ourselves as a group of professionals with the work of our profession to do together, instead of thinking about ourselves as atomized artistic individuals dedicated to realizing some uh, singular aesthetic vision.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really astute observation that you've made, and I appreciate it, Um, the shift from talking about architecture to talking about architects. I mean, obviously, at one level, it's about taking responsibility for your own acts, um, and that... It's not something out there, it's not the discipline, it's not the profession out there that has its own, I don't know, teleological conditions, um, but it's something that's constructed. And we, as individual architects, have constructed it, not just constructed in the past, but continue to construct it every time we enter into any kind of relationship, whether that's as a student, as a university, whether it's at the level of the office you choose to work in or whether it's the level of joining AIA, you know, and all of those are different scales of, by which we are constructing the discipline and architects do that.
2: Before we get to maybe some other ways or maybe as a means of getting to ways in which we can actively construct that reality or that condition. I was wondering if you could give us a little intro to the manifesto by way of reading it, or I could read it quickly because I think it's really important for this message to get out there, at least as a provocation, if nothing else, but hopefully as some sort of um, call to action. I was also going to ask if you could maybe point out some of the uh, manifesto points that you see as having some real wind in their sails at this particular moment in history, but that might be like asking you to pick your favorite child. And I'm not sure we can really <laughs> so neatly separate the two. Um, yeah. do, you have, do you have it, uh, the 10 points?
0: I do. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to read them and then go into the second part of your question, which is my favorite children. Um, okay. <laughs> but let me just read them. One, enforce labor laws that prohibit unpaid internships, unpaid overtime, refuse unpaid competitions. Two, reject fees based on percentage of construction or hourly fees and instead calculate value based on the money we save our clients or gain them. Three, stop peddling a product slash building and focus on the unique value architects help realize through spatial services. Four. Enforce wage transparency across the discipline. Five, establish a union for architects, designers, academics, and interns in architecture and design. Six, demystify the architect as solo creative genius. No honors for architects who don't recognize their staff. Seven, licensure upon completion of degree. Eight, change professional architectural organizations to advocate for the living conditions of architects. Nine, support research about labor rights in architecture and 10 implement democratic alternatives to the free market system of development. You know, in some way I think they're all relevant today, but I'll maybe focus on three of them because they're the ones that the lobby is actively working on right now. And I, and in some way, as a byproduct of the ones we're working on, others that are not those three, I think, are implicated. But anyway, establish a union for architects, designers, academics, and interns in architecture and design. That union call is uh, probably one of the more uh, controversial but also central calls of the manifesto. The, um, not everybody in the lobby agrees with unionization, and that's part of it being contested. And And at the end of this, I'll maybe you know, talk about how the manifesto works within, within the lobby. But there was uh, a very kind of intense debate that we had um, at a Congress of, of the lobby about unionization. And what came out of that was a kind of realization that those who believe most strongly in unionization really envisioned uh, work in large firms. And those who were more resistant to unionization and more pro-cooperatives were really visualizing small firms. Um, and just to say, you know, kind of in, in the Marxist background, unionists, feel quite strongly against co-ops. Um, we know, as Rosa Luxemburg said, co-ops are islands within capitalism and they don't push the revolution. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly intense intellectual debate about that. But when we realized that we could really in some way think about unionization as a project for large firms and think about cooper- cooperativization as a project for small firms, it really got us going. And now there are two different working groups. Um, there's the unionization working group, and then there's the small firms co working groups. And um, both both groups are working on, I guess we call them white papers and procedures for beginning to implement uh, how, how we actually set up or help uh, different firms set up either the cooperative model or or the union
2: model. Right. I mean, why do you think that is perhaps that in the smaller firms, there was a resistance to unions? I have some of my own theories, but I'm curious if you could say why you think these two groups, the people who work in large firms and the people who work in smaller firms, prefer these two different, let's call them vectors for greater democratization.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and first, you know, I, I I don't want to imply that large firms <laughs> love the idea of unions. I think large firms will not like the idea of unions, um, but workers in those large firms might. But but to go to your point, well, first of all, unions are whatever else you want might think about them are employee. Collective bargaining vehicles they advocate for the employee they do not advocate for the employer there 's no way of defining a union that 's not basically one that recognizes the distinct division between employee and employer and I think in architecture, you know particularly in the small firms, nobody wants to admit that difference um, I, I think part of what makes this job difficult and I would say is part of the myth of architectural practices that we're all a team. We're all working together for the best aesthetic product. You know, e- even though I'm paying your salary and I'm the boss, we're buddies. And and that's not just something that um, bosses <laughs> lay over um, employees' heads. I mean, I think all all of us who work in the office feel like, we don't want to make a distinction. We don't want to antagonize our boss. We want to be a team, but that desire on everybody's part, and I would call it part of the mythology of, you know, architectural practice prevents, prevents anybody from wanting to think about that division.
2: And has and has only been exacerbated by kind of Silicon Valley tech culture where we all play ping pong around, I don't know, a beer tap or something.
0: Totally, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely. I mean, it does. It does make me think about Zivix saying that the best thing that an employer can do for employees make that distinction clear,
2: <laughs> right? Um,
0: as opposed as opposed to being a buddy. So that's that's a large a large part of it. You know, and there's also, you know, in some way, if this kind of, we're all a team and we're all working together, it's complicated by a couple of other things. You know, one is that that is overlaid on top of the atelier system where I'm working at the, you know, feet of the master, and I'm so lucky to get these pearls of wisdom. And it's part of uh, becoming, um, an an expert that I don't challenge them. Um, you know, that this is, this is the protocol. So that's kind of a funny mix of we're all a team, but by the way, I'm completely honoring you and I'm not going to challenge you. I mean, that that's a, that's a kind of complex condition. Then there's another one, you know, which is that I think in small firms, the division between labor and management tends to be fairly fuzzy, you know, which is a at some point as you go up the ladder, you'll be managing a a team of people under you. Um, And at that point, what, what are you? Are you, are you labor management? Um, And because you actually, in all these different stages, think that you are just soon to be an employer. You know, you're soon to be a partner or own your own firm. It's just around the corner you don't want to identify too strongly with the employee side of of that equation. Um, You're either in the mix or you're about to be, you're about to be an employer.
2: Right. Let's uh, advance that line of thought, talk about a little bit about co-ops, which for me, I would define as a collective ownership of, in the architect's case, a practice or a firm. and, I think that they're promising because on the one hand, they reflect the current line of thought related to entrepreneurship, startup culture, a group of people starting something together. And on the other hand, they seem well placed to address some of the things in the manifesto, including greater democratization in the workplace, In some ways, they even, I would argue, address student debt if we think of ourselves collectively as being able to pool our resources to start something that we all control, rather than only uh, relegating the new young startup practices with those with the capital to do so. And I'm wondering about what some of the buzz in the architecture lobby or what you think some of the promises of cooperatives are, and maybe if you could give us a brief uh, explainer about what exactly a cooperative is.
0: Yeah, a cooperative can be anything from shared ownership um, to sharing of 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 information. Um, So at one level, we could see small firms forming a cooperative so that they share a lawyer, share someone who will handle benefits, share somebody who will negotiate salaries, share information around your engineers and your consultants, and in some way relieve small firms from having to figure out all the mechanics of administration, benefits, all that stuff, and you just pool that and share that. And that doesn't necessarily necessitate uh, employee Ownership or your know, shared shared ownership, and so that would then be the the other side that w- either within a firm it's em- employee-owned or across a, a number of, of different employee and uh, different small firms one could uh, Think about shared resources While you also still keep a separate identity that has to do with the kinds of projects that you want to take or the expertise that you are doing um, but you're still in some way an alliance that is uh is a, that larger cooperative i don't i don't know if you've um heard of the Mon, mondragon cooperative which is um, in started country. in the basque, in the basque country yeah so in some way that really stands as a as a model for those of us who are working on the cooperativeization small firms um that under that umbrella there are uh, different enterprises, uh, but but they all benefit from from that cooperative model. But you know, just to say, we're also looking at models that uh, bring unionization and cooperativization together. Mondragon cooperatives are are working with United Steelworkers um, to form a, a unionized cooperative. You know, and and in some way, I I think those of us in the lobby think of that as an ultimate ideal where the kind of division that we're ideological division that we're talking about no longer um, exists, but, but gives a mechanism for the advantage of unionization, which, which really is collective bargaining um, along with uh, employee ownership. Um,
2: Right. And, and just for people who don't know, Mondragon employs, I want to say around 76,000 people and all sorts of diverse industries from advanced manufacturing to a grocery business to things that are more kind of traditional manufacturing jobs to knowledge sector ones. So if Mondragon can do it, it, there seems to be no reason why architects can't seriously take up such a project, I would say. Exactly. Another point that maybe picks up a bit on number seven in the manifesto licensure upon completion of degree it's incredibly complex as most people know i think even our european and uh antipodal and asian friends are aware that the degree process in the u.s is incredibly complex that there's all sorts of ways to obtain an architecture degree there's different lengths of time one goes to school i'm wondering Why licensure upon completion of the degree is important, and an aspect of your work that you've mentioned sometimes, but I would be curious to hear elaborated on, is the notion of deprofessionalization. I don't think these things are necessarily related uh, licensure upon completion and deprofessionalization. In fact, they seem to be a bit in conflict. But what are these two provocations? Asking for or trying to identify as a current problem within the field.
0: It's such a good question, and just to say, you know, as kind of pouncing on the unionization and licensure upon completion of degree. Those those are the two most most controversial um, parts of the manifesto within within the architecture lobby itself you know there's some people who will just say get that number seven out of here you know they they disagree with it you know and again I, I i hope to come back to how the manifesto works but anyway you know particularly about licensure upon completion of degree we're actually not doing any work related on that so i just want to say that but i think we're watching very very closely the work that um, Renee Cheng is is doing at the University of Minnesota. Now, you know, she's in January going to become the dean at the School of Architecture at the University of Washington. You know, but she she has established a program. I believe it's called the Masters of Science in Architecture and Research and Practice, where architecture students uh, begin to um, interact with uh, practitioners. Uh, and other other members of the AEC industry, um, so that they're actually learning about the process of getting a, a building built such that while they're getting their master's degree, uh, they are also working on all those things that need to be done in, in order to do licensure. So um, I think that is that she's doing fabulous work that that, that we want to support. you know and then and then I, you know, I do think there is a way of retooling the standard master's program to um, have work embedded in it, such that it's not the case that we're saying, "Oh, go out there and, and start practicing without knowing anything." That you actually know more about what's involved in in actually getting um, a building through, other than just being a good designer. To Link that to deprofessionalization, and I really appreciate that you're linking those, because I, I think it's true that, that in some way they're different, but it's it's the same intellectual problem, I think. I am a big advocate of deprofessionalization, and I don't want to implicate my uh, other members of the architecture lobby, because that's not something that everyone agrees on. But there is this idea that if we um, substituted, for example, certification for licensure one could still monitor expertise but you could be much much more flexible um, about what's required and just and just to say the difference between licensure and certification is that certification is monitored by the discipline itself by the profession itself whereas licensure is monitored by the state um and not licensure being monitored by the state has many many implications one is that it's a heavy ship to re-steer um but this might sound too technical, but one of the things that the state does, and here we can really talk about Ncarb because Ncarb is the one who's managing how the state deals with licensure. They advocate for the public; they don't advocate for the profession, and so they're hesitant to do things that might actually empower architects. So, so that's a complicated thing. But I also want to bring up the example of Sweden. Which I think is such a kind of fabulous example. In Sweden, um, they don't have licensure. Anyone can call themselves an architect. And they also have found that in Europe, their architects are better paid than any other architects in in the other European countries. Just to (laughs) hit home the point that there's no relationship between professionalization and higher fees. The other thing that it does you know is makes their um professional organization well we can't we won't call it a professional we will make it a union because they the thing that corresponds to the ai there is a union um and that union insists that if you have gone to a school of architecture and there are the state does do accreditation even they don't do licensure if you've gone to an accredited school you have to become a union of the member a, a member of the union sorry and um, and so in some way that union becomes the place for quality control, as as in there's, It's different for somebody who is part of that union to say I'm an architect than for a plumber who's just decided that he wants to design some buildings. And you know, part part of what comes up with certification as opposed to licensure is the possibility of having uh, gradations of, of certification, so in some way, the way that pilots have different um, grades, that if you fly in a certain number of hours, you can do a private plane, if you, you know, of a certain size, if you've done a certain number of hours with something else, you can do bigger planes, so it's interesting to think about that as a possible solution to the issue that you're bringing up out of school with a certain amount of of professional experience, you can design a private house, you know, or you can, you know, work on additions or whatever, and that you actually build up uh, expertise around more more complicated buildings. But it does mean that you could call yourself an architect earlier on, as opposed to just calling yourself as somebody who has a master's degree. And by the way, it'll take me four more years to to call myself an architect, and by the time that happens, no one cares anymore. So your work
2: asks us as architects to consider how we can make these democratic spaces in out in the public if we don't think about democratic processes within our profession, if we don't think about equity within our profession. And so maybe that's a good opportunity to talk about how the lobby isn't some coherent group that all thinks the same thing, but that there it's a process and how the manifesto works in that collective of people, um, some of the conflicts and how it gets resolved or even not resolved. But yeah, basically how the manifesto works within the lobby.
0: It's a opportunity for us to keep debating issues that uh, don't have had answers. Um and in some way I think the lobby is a lobby has in a a room for debate as opposed to answers so one of the things that we think about is yes and yes we can agree with this and I want to consider this other thing or I want indicate um the complexity of of that of that issue you yeah, know so it, it Keeps being uh, an opportunity for us to think about these complex issues. Um, there have been moves, and, you know, again at different congresses we've had. You know, let's take off seven, let's take off five. You know, this one's relevant, this one's not. But I think there is now, after all those debates, a general thing is like the good thing is that we that we spend a half hour or more. Talking about the value of that being there, and that's exactly what we want to be doing. Another way of thinking about this is that the lobby is a space for radical democracy, and so radical democracy is not not consensus, uh, but making sure that all all the disagreements are are heard and debated and taken taken seriously.
2: Right. So one thing I think the lobby has been really great about addressing is hashtag Me Too, and You've done that in two distinct ways, in my mind. One is in giving me to a clear and distinct platform at your think-in, uh, which occurred in parallel with the National AIA convention recently, as well as a very empowering statement on the architecture lobby's website, and. I'm wondering to what extent could or should the Me Too movement be understood as intersectionally related to broader workplace exploitation? And is there room for men and women to build solidarity around this that both addresses the specific grievances of women while also speaking to the material and social relations in the workplace more broadly?
0: Yeah, no, it's a really really good question. I think that... um, exploitation in the workplace and sexual harassment slash discrimination are both subsets of the larger problem that we've already talked about, which is the kind of mythology of um, none of us are workers, none of us are employees, lucky me to be, you know, asked to work 24-7, you must love me, you must think I'm great. Keep asking me to do this. You know, you're the master, but we're a team. You know, all, all those things that we previously described. I think, I think um, the general exploitation and the we me too movement are are products of of that problematic scenario. So we need to get rid of that scenario, and then maybe we won't have abusive labor practices or all those problems. But I do think that women are like canaries in the mines, which is they will feel it first and feel it worse um, than the rest of the profession. So they're a, uh, a sign of deeper problems, um, which is partly why I think solving the sexual harassment or, or discrimination is not the goal, um, it's a symptom of of a larger um, structural problem.
2: Right. What were some of the takeaways from the meetings and conversations at the think-in that came up in relationship to this?
0: Well, it was interesting. I think there was a general sense that the particular forum uh, that was organized around uh, Me Too was the most I don't know how to say it. The most problematic, or yielded the fewest insights, and I, I think that there is something about that issue that we don't know how to intellectualize. You know, which is to say, I think in some way um, that particular part of the thinking still fell back on anecdotal information and moving beyond anecdotal information is just incredibly hard and i'm not in any way blaming the panelists it's it's a larger cultural problem i think that we don't we don't know how to take this from a fairly personal condition to a larger intellectual structural discussion So I feel that it was the beginning of uh, a much needed and extended uh, discussion so that we can have a more coherent approach
2: to this. To to some extent, not having a clear answer speaks to the need for uh, more room to discuss it and try to listen more to come up with ideas of how to address it. And both the lobby itself and its setup, hopefully, I think, provides that space and some of the things you advocate for within the profession, whether that's cooperatives or unions, hopefully also can provide that room to continue to work through it. I'm curious how your position and work impacts how you teach students in studio or how you taught students in studio. Could you talk a bit about that, your approach to teaching? Are there ways of organizing studio work that promote the ideals you're advocating for? And how would a deeper appreciation of the architect as worker reshape the pedagogy of an architect's education?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. In the studios that I've taught, I um, ask the students to sign a contract. They will not do all-nighters. and um, take them out at midnight before the projects are due to a bar so they're not in any shape to go back and work. I try and set up the jury such that the critics do not have their backs to the students, you know, that this is an opportunity for education. And education doesn't happen when you're talking to each other as critics and not talking to the students. I have asked uh, students to keep a record of their hours that they're spending on their design projects just so they become conscious of whether they are um, using their time wisely or, or not. And I tend to give problems that ask the students to move beyond just the design of the building to either uh, include their knowledge about the procurement process in a, in a particular program, in a particular site, um, who would provide this steel and where does the steel come from, where does the wood come from, what is local, what is not local, so that they have a larger sense that uh, we're connected to a much larger system of material and economy and expertise, um, but I've also done studios where I've made sure that the students either utilize an, an expert, you know, we could, whether that's a software expert, whether it's an engineer, whether it's a glass fabricator expert, that they have to utilize uh, that expertise um, in, in their project, such that they're not just designing this thing and like, oh, who knows whether it can be done, that they really know it can, they know that they need to talk to somebody else other than themselves about how it does get done but you know just to say if if i try in these various ways to you know make people make students conscious of the of the value of their work and uh coordinating and cooperating with with other other people i i think it's not nearly enough you know i'm i'm not particularly proud of telling you these things because i really think it's kind of like um Rearranging the decks on the t- the deck chairs on the t- mm. t- Titanic um, I, I think there must has to be a much larger change in how we understand studio and what what we understand design to be and expanding design to be not just you know that particular building that you're designing but designing the um, the process
2: I'm totally sympathetic to uh, being cautious that we're not just rearranging the deck chairs, but in the meantime. <laughs> Uh, signing a contract of no all nighters and uh the promise of a beer before the final review is also an effective way uh to <laughs> in the studio lottery to recruit students. <laughs> so,
0: and that's interesting. Yeah. I don't think <laughs> it was I don't think it was a come on, but I but I think the students <laughs> that I've gotten in my studios, no one objected. <laughs> right, and I right. and I will and I will say that, you know, they've all kind of said that they've never not had an all-nighter between them or, or the final and that it was completely, it didn't in any way um, make the work less brilliant, <laughs> um, right. or compromise their ability, you know, no, nobody said there was a shortfall and almost everybody said that there was something to be gained.
2: Right, right. At the Rebuilding Architecture Symposium at Yale, you listed overcoming our collective elitism and aesthetic autonomy as passed forward. Perhaps the first one, overcoming the collective elitism, is a little bit more straightforward, but could you say a bit more about the second point, the aesthetic autonomy? And more widely, what are some of the specific ways you've thought about or acted on to rebuild architecture in this way
0: yeah, the aesthetic autonomy uh, is I think the more traditional way that we understand our discipline and the way it's taught in history and theory, which is that uh, architecture has its own unique history that explains how we move from one style to another and uh one set of aesthetic parameters and concerns to another. Um why it is we highlight certain heroes uh at one time and another set of heroes at another time. It really kind of implies that architecture as a history and as a discipline um follows its own autonomous trajectory. And I feel that that is um, improper history and that in fact the changes in what architecture is asked to do, um, changes in style, changes in um, the parameters that need to be addressed and that architecture can address have to do with much larger economic political con- conditions and that any history that doesn't see the discipline, as related to larger political economic issues, is false history. I just believe that.
2: Thanks so much. It's been a really exciting conversation, and we look forward to sharing it.
0: I really appreciate these questions. You you really have gone through um, my work and the work of the lobby with with real thoroughness, you know, which makes this a really interesting conversation for me. So I really, really appreciate it. Yeah,
2: our pleasure. Thank you.
0: I'll see you soon.
2: See you soon.
1: Be sure to catch Peggy's lecture in Houston on October 10th at the Match Auditorium. All fall lecture series are free and open to the public. For more information, visit the latest news tab on the Rice Architecture website. Don't forget to subscribe to our page on SoundCloud to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Eileen Nosley, and this has been Ted a Ted. Thank <laughs> you.